0: Bane free radio
1: hour on the podcast philosophers discover the universal joint to the universe can only be oiled with chocolate milk and peppermint tea April mass markets acquire Higgs boson spin characteristics to show up at booksellers now Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of a two-part interview with David Drake, on his new Republic of Cinnabar science fiction novel, Though Hell Should Bar the Way. This is an interesting entry in the series where we get to see the redoubtable Captain Leary and the implacable librarian and intelligent hop, Fidel Monday, from a completely new perspective. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Now here's the news. April showers down the mass markets first with Span of Empire by Eric Flint and David Carrico. This is a new novel in Eric Flint's science fiction Jow Empire series that he started with the late K.D. Wentworth. It has become clear to both the Jiao and their humans and Leish partners that if they are going to defeat the rapacious Ekat, who have been terrorizing the galaxy for aeons, they need more allies. To that end, Perceptor Ron's Guardian of Earth and greatest living strategist of the Jow. Has harnessed the energy of Earth's humans to create and send out an exploration fleet under the command of Caitlin Kralik. But after a long search, all the expedition has found are dead worlds and now extinct intelligent species slaughtered by the genocidal Ekkat. Meanwhile, the Ekkat, as murderous and destructive as they have always been, have a new generation of leaders growing into power who are even more implacable than those who have gone before. The Ekat have not forgotten the Jow, nor the damage they have done over the years to the Ekat purpose. It's up to the Jow, Human, Leish, Confederation, and the new allies to survive the onslaught and turn the tables on the Ekat Also out in April is Kane's Mutiny by Charles E. Gannon. This is book four in the Kane-Riordan science fiction series by winner of the Compton Crook Award, Charles E. Gannon. Kane-Riordan fresh from serving as an envoy to the aliens known as the Slushrithi, has been given another daunting task, apprehend raiders that are terrorizing a distant planet. As difficulties mount, Cain becomes aware that the mission his superior sent him to perform may not be the one they actually hope he will achieve, which means Cain may be forced to choose between honoring a promise to friends or following orders, a choice that could ultimately put him in front of a board of inquiry or a Firing Squad. Span of Empire by Eric Flint and David Carrico, and Kane's Mutiny by Charles E. Gannon are both available at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part interview with David Drake discussing RCN entry, though hell should bar the way. Part one is available on last week's podcast.
2: I want to welcome David Drake to the podcast. Hello, David. He's actually here in studio.
3: I am. Hello, world, or main world.
2: Yeah. Uh, David Drake was attending Duke Law School when he was drafted. He served the next two years in the Army, spending 1970 as an enlisted interrogator with the 11th Armored Cavalry in Vietnam and Cambodia, Completed his law degree at Duke and was for eight years assistant town attorney for Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He still lives nearby. He has been a full time freelance writer since 1981. His books include the genre defining and best selling Hammer Slammer series and the nationally best selling RCN series, including The Road of Danger, The Sea Without a Shore, Death Sprite Day, and Though hell should bar the way, which is the the new one that's going to be at booksellers everywhere. That is at booksellers everywhere
3: as you are listening to this. Well, I mean, you know, Daniel has very little to lose. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and well, he, ma- he makes a good choice because Roy does turn out to be an incredibly winning young young man to follow. Um, he's just a good guy, really, isn't yeah. he?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, and he's he's a different sort of character from either Leary or Mundy, uh, or for that matter, any of the uh, the side characters I've been using. Um, he has real virtues, but he can't shoot, and his, uh, his ship handling is conspicuous by its absence. His navigation is nothing great, but... Uh, but he knows the ins and outs of uh, the supply system. That's right. That is his skill. That's, yeah. Well, he's, uh, that's it. He's, he's got real skills.
2: He was raised in a logistics family. His dad was before he became a corrupt.
3: Um, yeah, well, you know, his dad was really good at it. <laughs> and when he he began being corrupt, he knew how to do that too. So yeah, I Emily mean he also
2: is—he's aware of his own limitations, which is a great skill to have as well. I think yes,
3: <laughs> something we all have to learn. Yeah, truthfully,
2: um, and and so he gets on, and uh, they go off. What
3: are they doing?
2: They're, They're they, have, they have a, a, a face uh, prima facie mission, and then they have a real mission.
3: Yeah, the uh, the ship is carrying. A low-level trade mission, low-level because it's to a, a very distant planet, and the and you know there, there can't really be a lot of trade between Cinnabar and where they're going. Uh, but you know the the officials are are just as pompous as junior officials can be expected to be. And um, they're really there to foment a war with the uh, hegemony of Karst. And they've gotten, Lyrian and Mundy have gotten approval of starting this war from elements in the Alliance of Free Stars, the great enemy of the RCN. Uh, you know, they've worked out a deal behind the scenes and Leary and Mundy are just there to foment a casus belli, an occasion of war. And it's, it's really that simple. However, to the rest of the world, including the RCN, the Cinnabar Diplomatic Service, it looks like they're about to restart the huge, mutually destructive conflict with the alliance. And, you know, that's because a secret deal has been cut, and it's secret from the foreign ministry as well. There's always the possibility, of course, that the arrangement that has been secretly made will not be held to, and the, you know the foreign ministry may be absolutely right um, but you have folks working against the mission from within the mission itself.
2: one of them is a beautiful little femme fatal
3: absolutely femme
2: mauve, I believe her name is,
3: yeah. Um well who, we don't had, we may, probably don't know what her real name that's is.
2: That's true. Who may or may not have the hots for Roy. But uh Um
3: uh, Hey, professionally she absolutely does. And that tradecraft is all it's at.
2: Yeah. And so that's that's how it's set up. Um one thing that happens in the book, uh probably shouldn't get into the whole of how and why, but there's a there's some piracy and um some, and Roy and some others end up in some, in some bad situations. Um, and you had, uh, in the afterwards, you talk about the Barbary pirates. Yes, and, and absolutely. And some interesting points about them that, um, that come up, such as that it's, it was really a slave trade. Absolutely.
3: Was, the, these are the same people who were carrying on the trade in black Africans who were being shipped to the New World, These were absolutely the same people, uh, only they were kidnapping Europeans and selling them to, well, actually a lot of them went to Turkey and Egypt and and this sort of thing. Uh, Not as many, but they were trying hard. Uh, Something in the order of a million Europeans were enslaved. Uh, You know, anything in the order of 10 million black Africans, but in both cases, the actual people doing the slaving, as opposed to, you know, selling them, uh, the people doing the slaving were uh, Africans. They were uh, North African tribesmen, Moors. There was hugely, not Arabs, uh, pretty much not Turks. I mean, there, there were Turks involved in some quantity. There were a few Arabs involved uh and um they they used a fair number of sub-saharan blacks as um grunts in their activities uh but basically the barbary pirates were slavers and um you know their kin were slavers farther south um and they I, I'd always thought of piracy as being we capture this ship and we loot the treasure out of it. Then you read the, uh, the actual accounts, you know, pirate memoirs. <laughs> you know, you've got a shipload of rice. What are you going to do with a shipload of rice, for Christ's sake, or cam wood? You know, we're, we're not talking about great loads of silver and gold here. Um, well... With the Barbary pirates, it was even simpler. Uh, they were capturing ships, and they were selling the crews as slaves, frequently back to the nations they'd been stolen from. Um, and and that's that's what these folks are doing. They were
2: rancing them, ransoming them when they could. Yep. To get enough money, otherwise they'd just sell them right into. Into slavery on the continent, or just every oh, they, direction? You
3: know, it depends. If they were pretty girls, they would probably wind up some, you know, really uh, expensive locations. Uh, if they were just grunts, uh, <laughs> use them as galley slaves. Although, in fact, most of the, the pirate galleys were not slave crewed. They were crewed by the pirates themselves, uh, Moors, as I say, uh, Kabilis, Hmm. Um, you know, same folks who um, provided a lot of the um, uh, foreign troops for the French in the 19th century and uh, indeed later. Uh, The Zouaves uh, who, with their their colorful flowing costumes, uh, became in the U.S. Civil War, taken over from a lot of French styles. Uh, you look, there are lots of Zouave regiments in both the Union and Confederate sides. The New York Fire Zouaves, you know, with <laughs> filmy red uniforms and such. Um, you know, the, the Zouaves were one of the North African tribes that the, uh, the French used a lot, the Kabylis, uh uh, you know, basically they were very warlike. They were not Arabs. Um, uh, these are the people who conquered Spain in the uh, 8th century.
2: So it would be, what, Algeria, Tunisia? Uh, Morocco. Morocco, yes. There. Yeah, yeah
3: um, and, and this continued. The uh, <laughs> very famous example during uh, World War II the, the Gooms were another of these tribes. Uh, the Gustav line in Italy was, you know, the Germans were fighting inch by inch up the Italian peninsula. Great expense. And, you know, the, all, all the effort by uh, the Allies, and partly because the Allied forces were being led by Mark Clark, who was a complete idiot, but um, a Clemson, or a, a Citadel graduate, by the way. But um, the French told, you know, their <laughs> the command that uh, they could get through the uh, German lines. If they were given a free hand, and the, this was done, and the um, the French general in charge told his Goum regiments that um, if they broke the Gustav line, uh, they had twenty four hours of absolutely free reign No one would say a word to them about any crimes that were alleged to have been committed uh for the Mm -hmm. 24 hours after the victory and these irregulars because they were pretty much uh infiltrated the german lines cut throats got through broke the gustav line and then for 24 hours uh raped, pillaged, and killed any Italians who happened to be getting in their way. They they weren't out there to kill. Uh, they were there mostly to rape and loot. Uh, they did that, and they the French kept their word to the troops. Uh, they got <laughs> a free pass uh, and saved an awful lot of Allied lives. Uh, it's still considered a major atrocity by the italians and of course it is a major atrocity Mm -hmm. yeah but this you might
2: not be so happy if you were one of the (laughs) well uh, there there have been a
3: number of movies uh you know italian movies made about this yeah um but um you know it broke the gustav line which an awful lot of blood had been expended not doing yeah
2: well, what was the, um, how did you translate over the Barbary pirates, um, to the Hell Shabar the way, um, there's the planet, uh, uh the pirate planet that yep. you've created. What's it? It's for one thing that it's funny, uh, because they're really incompetent in many ways.
3: Well, it's, this, the, these are a libertarian society, really. Uh, pretty much everybody goes armed, uh, you don't have much in the way of governmental structures. What you do are corrupt. Uh, you have no manufacturing. Uh, it's, you know, what you've got is what you steal uh, from off-planet. And, um, yeah, it, uh, and it it's very much the way the Barbary pirates, their individual states, um
2: it's, it's wow. like uh, strongmen, maybe a, bit, a little way Somalia might might be. Oh yeah, something like that. Yeah, and the, but they really are not very good at coming out with computer passwords. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, that and Roy uh, is able to figure that out pretty quickly. Yeah,
3: uh, they're using mechanical, uh, but that's Roy as someone from a developed civilization is in a highly skilled—he's a very valuable slave because he knows stuff. Uh, If you look at the way the Barbary pirates actually operated, usually the folks in positions of significant rank had risen to that. They they were Europeans who—some of them had simply joined— the pirates, because they had a better chance of getting ahead. Um, they weren't, you know, the pirates weren't really trying to train their own people in gunnery, for example. Uh, they'd get an Italian, hire an Italian, uh, make an Italian the the chief of gunnery for the uh, the city. Um, that's That's very much the sort of thing. If you wanted a watchmaker, uh, if you didn't happen to capture one, you imported him. And, you know, he wasn't enslaved. Um, He could um, then, you know, practice his his art. So there. Um, Doctors were mostly uh, Europeans.
2: Yeah, I imagine they would... uh bring quite a price and perhaps were less likely to be ransomed if they were.
3: Well, uh you didn't have to capture. I mean, you you could hire people with these specialties if you needed one. Uh you know, there there was constant contact between the Barbary mm. states and civilized Europe. And uh you know, you so the two-way trade in a way. Oh, uh, yeah, very, yeah. Well, the, money and... I, I, I spent some time in Algiers, and if you knock around public spaces and buildings in Algiers, you'll see a lot of really wonderful Delft tile work on, you know, public spaces, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's...
2: Delft being uh, Dutch? Dutch, uh,
3: yeah. yes. And the... Uh, The Dutch were great traders and great mariners, and so a great deal of Dutch sailors were captured by the Barbary pirates, and they were ransomed by charitable groups in Holland, and they were bought back not for gold, I'm sure that would have been acceptable, but basically they were traded back for specialties of Holland, and one of those specialties was Delft tile work. And so you have this, this wonderful 18th century tile work uh, all over Algiers now. Hmm. It it lasts just fine.
2: Yeah. One of the, and Roy, uh, on the pirate planet, is um, it, he's able to use something he never would have done in civilization but that that he saw how to do which is be corrupt. Absolutely. <laughs> he, he Why should he be different? To, yeah. <laughs> so he's much like his father but he's
3: Well, uh, doing it in the, uh, when in, in the Rome the RC. <laughs> or in this case when in Tripoli yeah. does the Tripolitanians do which is steal. Yeah. And I he's like, good at it. Yeah,
2: I like the in fact you give some examples. I like, did you do any research in how did, or are you just naturally somebody that
3: knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, you you run into this stuff. Look, I I do a lot of reading. Yeah, and uh, yeah, sure.
2: Um, what so. were your sources on uh, on? The, you you like to read like con, like source historians that like were there or were like shortly thereafter, right? Is oh it-
3: yeah, absolutely. Uh, the probably the most useful single. Um, piece I read is uh, there's a large volume of 30 years in uh, Tripoli by a sister of the British resident to Tripoli. And, you know, all of the European states had uh, residents, consuls, you know, some sort of official government representation because all of them had some sort of a deal with the local ruler. And you, you had to have somebody to whom your people could turn when they were improperly captured because, you know, you had a an arrangement with, the ruler saying that you would pay however much in um, indemnity, tribute, if you will, to him in order to leave your citizens alone. And if one of your citizens were captured anyway, there had to be somebody to enforce that law. And so the sister of one of the British residents in Tripoli, one of the Barbary states, um, wrote lengthy, detailed letters about life and um, customs. And she was a woman, so she got into the harem of the uh, the local ruler. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, consider, considerable advantages. And these were published... Um, and I uh, you know that that was probably the most useful single thing, but there are lots of memoirs out there um
2: Roy meets a girl, well, yes he does in this time and and you do get into some of the harem uh stuff there as well and the, she's a interesting character in that she's um she's hanging on um but she didn't she could have been ransomed, but she wasn't um
3: No, well, that's another problem you have. What if the local representative of the civilized power is himself corrupt? And um, in that's her case, she should have been ransomed. And um, the local ruler made it worth the civilized representative's time so to speak, uh, to have her just drop between the cracks. So she is stuck in a really horrible situation and she's stuck there until Roy gets involved. And he
2: gets involved. Yeah. He's a hero. Yeah, he does. He's he's cool. Um, and in the end... Um... With Larian Monday, do you think that, uh, is 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 Roy now um, official uh, uh, and Monday uh, crew crewman in the future? Uh, he he know?
3: is at the point we leave this book when I decide what to do next. I expect we will be seeing him again, see him again. but we don't know that. Yeah, I don't know that. Tony character? may know that, and then you know, if, yeah. if she tells me, she says, by God, that's the case. But I
2: want another Oph tree or yeah. Yes. Tree book.
3: O'Filtre. Mm-hmm.
2: Um did you write this on after you had because there are some similarities between the character that's the main character, the spark. Um
3: uh, yeah, O-fil-tree. to a, to a degree. That one worked out so well. And I thought Can I do that again, but just different um you know completely different situation, which it is. Uh so and uh Roy is a more sophisticated character than Pal in the Spark. Um I mean he he does come from upper class Cinnabar society.
2: He didn't start out as a yokel like
3: like Pal. Yeah. Is. Yeah.
2: So, um, speaking of uh, of the spark um, and and that universe, um, you mentioned that you were working on and almost done with. Perhaps, I, I or...
3: absolutely. I am doing the the third pass, the polish pass on the storm, which is a book in series with the spark. You should be able to read. The storm all by itself. If you don't read the spark, but I, I recommend people read the spark because that's actually, I think, my best book, with the exception of uh, Redliners, and Redliners isn't everybody's kind of book. The spark is everybody's kind of book.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful book. It will uh, also be out in uh, in mass market, um, I believe, this summer. I have to look at the schedule, but uh, it, it's coming out and it's out in hardcover right now. Of course, in ebook form as well. Just have wonderful, been receiving wonderful feedback from readers on the spark as well. I'm and glad, really because like it.
3: Th- this was really a stretch, you know. Um, I, I try and stretch myself, but I I don't usually try and stretch myself that far. And I'm glad it worked. That's no, a
2: very far future. <laughs> yep, where people have forgotten a lot about. It's almost a. Uh, um, Gene Wolfie uh, or uh,
3: well Jack Vance. Jack Vance, that's
2: oh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know, and space uh, dying Earth kind of world. Uh, uh, yeah,
3: yeah. It uh,
2: although not quite as cynical and
3: <laughs> I, I am I am a lovable, happy person. Yeah, you're so lovable. <laughs> 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 well, I am a much happier person than yeah. i was or a, a much less depressed person than I was before I wrote redliners. I've been coming up since yeah. then
2: no it's a it's a wonderful it's a i would say the spark was an uplifting book so thank you Maybe the storm shall be too. we'll find out um, so what what will be the project after that, or do you not
3: uh i I am crashing the completion of a novel. And when I achieve that for about three days, I'm just spinning off in all directions mentally Mm -hmm. and getting traction nowhere. And I have absolutely no idea. Possibly I'll go off to Guadalcanal and become a coconut planter.
2: You probably thought that after every book, something like that.
3: Uh, Yeah, I do. (laughs) Look, this... I, I love what I do. I mean, believe me, I, I love the work. But it is work, and I wind up from it exhausted, and I have, I'm have, i carrying a 97,000-word novel in my head right now, and it isn't this novel either that we've just been talking about. Uh, and there is no room for anything else. Yeah. <laughs> well, finish
2: the damn thing because we are all eagerly awaiting it me too people
3: me too i'm i'm in the final edit well excellent
2: well out now at booksellers everywhere is though hell should bar the way which is um a new rcn novel by david drake dave thank you so much once again for uh, sitting here with us and and telling us some some tales and uh, <laughs> discussing
3: these. I, I know the, the history of this company, and I know the history of some others, as a matter of fact. But, okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it's always a pleasure, Tony. So, and, and best to all you out there in the ether.
1: That was part two of a two-part interview with David Drake, discussing RCN entry through hell should bar the way. Part one is available on last week's podcast.
2: This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, Master Trader Sean Galen and Corval's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corville's traders, under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with Dutiful Trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalan, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals.
0: Chapter 28 Admiral Bunter Research had already failed him. Nothing in his archives had given him the answer to his question. Tolly Jones, his mentor, on whose willingness to answer those questions left unanswered by research he had come to depend upon, Tolly Jones refused to answer further on the basis of this melanti. No, Admiral Bunter corrected himself, that was an error. It was sloppy thinking. Tolly Jones refused to answer further because, by applying the tool of Melanti to his current situation, he had arrived at the conclusion that he was a prisoner, no longer a mentor, and thus his necessities were constrained. Admiral Bunter had researched the necessities of prisoners. They were varied, as he learned that prisons and jailers were also varied. It would appear, for instance, that Tolly Jones's prison, himself, Admiral Bunter, a tidy, bright, and well supplied freighter, was considerably more beneficent than many. Indeed, he had considered calling Tolly's assertion of his Melanti into question based on his conditions and had decided that this would be petty, and also immaterial, as it would seem that the core requirement, confinement against one's will, was met. Research showed that, in addition to confinement, some prisoners were physically punished by their jailers. Sometimes, it appeared, such jailers wished to obtain information held by the prisoner. Sometimes they merely wished to be cruel and increase the prisoner's distress as a just punishment for transgressions. Some prisoners were merely held, their jailers completely indifferent to any information that they might or might not possess. These were held in order to control the behavior or to ensure the goodwill of a third party. On the surface, it would seem that such prisoners were fortunate as the conditions of their use would shield them from physical harm. Research, however, would have it that involuntary confinement itself was sufficient to distress the larger percentage of humans and uncertainty regarding their fate or the continued goodwill of the third party was also a cruel punishment. Still, other prisoners were held and punished in order to make them malleable. These were then shaped into tools which the jailer might use to influence or destroy third parties. There had been much study given to prisoners, the psychology of imprisonment and the scars borne by those who had been imprisoned. The Admiral had come away from his research with, at least, a better understanding of the reasons why Tolly Jones was distressed to find himself a prisoner, and also the reasons why he refused to answer questions. It was an act of will, an act of rebellion, of strength, for a prisoner to refuse to answer his jailer's questions. Prisoners found their situations oppressive. Acts of rebellious will were necessary lest they sicken and die in their imprisonment. Having learned more than he wished regarding prisoners, Admiral Bunter had turned to his own role. Jailer. If the role of prisoner was demoralizing and oppressive, the role of jailer was horrifying. And it would seem that, while Tolly Jones remained a prisoner, the only way Admiral Bunter would be able to gain answers from him was to, in some way, compel him. He scanned the lists of methods jailers used in order to compel prisoners, and abruptly closed that line of research, deeply unsettled. Ethics was pinging, frantically, stupid module, as if he didn't know at the core level, as if he would, as if he could. And yet, he required answers. He could learn much from research, but he, he needed a teacher, a mentor to assist him in comprehending the gestalt. Perhaps there was something, some method, which was less intrusive than Protocol came online, cold. He could see the regulations fluttering. Worse, he could see the black edges of command orders among them. Research, he said hastily. Command orders. Protocol could archive him. It had that power if there was a breach. If Protocol found that he had become unstable. There has been no breach, he said. I am sane and not in need of termination. I was merely performing needed research. Research into the destruction of a human being in your care? Yes, I have logs. Please review them. Protocol accessed the files he marked out. The record of his most recent talk with Tolly Jones his own research log, his last session with mentor Inky Yo, in which she had explained to him what sort of human Tolly Jones was and what the law demanded. The fluttering continued palely. Command orders had been put aside, at least. The Admiral knew relief. The fluttering ceased altogether, replaced by the amber of a caution warning. This is not an acceptable protocol for dealing with humans in your care. You may protect yourself if you are threatened, but you may not inflict harm. I must have answers, Admiral Bunter protested. Find another way, protocol replied coldly and retired. Customs. The message came across the ship band. We release cameras and inspect. Witless waste of time, if you ask me, muttered Kick Streller, who was sitting first. Second mate, Lonan Davis, who was sitting second, touched the comm switch. Dutiful passage acknowledges, he told the cutter, and to first board, logging and transmitting to captain. Another waste of time and energy, the good pilot muttered. Orders, said Lonan, who was not the most loquacious of the pilots aboard, despite his new Dublin heritage and his kinship with the passage's master trader. Orders is right, Kick said with a tired smile. If it wasn't for orders, what would we do with ourselves, eh? We can't all be bards and poets, Lonan agreed. Best, then, to do as we're told. Kick laughed, and they subsided into mutual silence, tending their boards and watching the screens. She and father sorted through the cards, keys, and invitations they had gathered at the reception during a working breakfast, Mr. Higgs, seeing how it was with them, had taken his plate, his cup, and his book across the room, and settled into one of the chairs by the big window. Do you wish yourself back in the murk, Vanner? Father asked him, as he handed the card of a certain master, Josephette Zeldner, to Paddy for her consideration. No, sir. Mr. Higgs said easily, turning his head to look at Father over the back of the chair. I'm reading for pleasure, and nobody's shooting at me. I'm content. Excellent. Do not, please, hesitate to speak up. If we should begin to be in any way unsatisfactory. I'll do that, sir, Mr. Higgs said seriously. Will you be wanting a car today? A car? Father turned to her, eyebrows up. What do you think, traitor? Will we want a car today? Paddy frowned down at the port map. Langlast Port was constructed as a series of four interlocking squares, like tiles in a mosaic, each square representing a specialty and designated by the name of a local flower, thus Calumbean, Irish, Beesbrickle, and Fraust. What we have mapped thus far is within two adjacent squares. There is the light rail, but if timing becomes tight, we may wish a car. Which may be no faster than the light rail, Father murmured, bending over the map with her. I see. Well, How if we fill in the rest of the day with locations in these two squares? For tomorrow, we will identify our most critical contacts in these two squares. He touched the map with a light fingertip. When those are established, we will fill in around, and so on, into the day after. That would do well for all except this. Paddy held up the card he had just given her. Master Zeldner is a vintner, and the address on the card is not only outside of any convenient squares, but outside of the port entire. She tapped the location on the map, halfway to the mountains, framed in their suite's big windows. I believe Master Zeldner has a business location in the port. Certainly, she gave that impression. I shall make inquiries, but we have wandered from Vanner's point. Will we want a car? If we follow your scheme and choose our primary contacts by their proximity to each other and filling the secondary contacts in around them, then my sense is that the light rail will be perfectly adequate for us. She paused doubtfully. Unless you anticipate parcels. Parcels? There may be some, but they can easily be sent on. No need to be juggling parcels on the light rail. For that matter, there's no need to advertise our previous contact to our present contact. Though I caught the notion that gossip was high art on Langlast Port. Paddy smiled. I caught the same notion. So, do we agree that we do not need a car? Why, we do. Vanner, he turned to address Mr. Higgs. Thank you for your thoughtfulness and for your continued patient forbearance. Trader Jos Galen tells me that we will not need a car. We shall travel via the light rail. Yes, sir, Mr. Higgs answered. The light rail system in port is pretty reliable, according to the local folks. Out port, it gets less reliable real fast. So if you need to go out to the vine country, you'll probably want that car. The local folks, did you ask practical questions of our guests, Vanner? Tried to, sir. How very forward-looking of you. It never occurred to me to ask questions about the light rail or hiring cars. Did it occur to you, Paddy? Her ears warmed in sudden embarrassment. She should have made inquiries, knowing that they would be staying on port. But no, sir, it didn't occur to me at all. I was focused on welcoming our guests and and seeking trade opportunities as I was. We are a sad pair of impractical traders, I fear. Though we were clever enough to bring Vanner with us, so perhaps we aren't entirely beyond the pale. Perhaps not this time, she said, matching his tone, but one does not always rejoice in Mr. Higgs's company. That is distressing, but very true. We do not always have Vanner with us. Therefore, we must strive to do better for ourselves, and remember to check our research against local information. It's a minor thing, I dare say, merely slipping in a question about how best one might arrive at the contact's facility, or a question regarding such a thing as the service most expectable of the light rail which our research, of course, will have revealed to us. We are not local, we do not pretend to be local, and a certain ignorance from outworlders is often found charming. The local folk, as I'm sure Vanner will agree, are often very eager to assist a stranger. They also might lie, Paddy pointed out, or use our ignorance to take an advantage, or even to entrap us. Father tipped his head. Wariness is reasonable on a strange port, he said slowly. But overcaution can cripple. Now, what have we on the day? Four top-tier calls, including your textile merchant. Do you think we should add a fifth? or move on to the second tier. Paddy picked up a small set of cards, fanned them, and sorted quickly by address. We have three second-tier contacts within today's two squares. There are no more high-tier cards in today's squares. I propose we add the second tiers, then make cold calls among these two squares. She paused and gave him a hesitant look. I assume you will want to do cold calls, she added. "Oh, Absolutely, I adore cold calls, as I know you do. Actually, Paddy said, I don't like to make cold calls, but if we're to do a proper port tour. I agree, Father interrupted. She frowned and glanced down at the map again. Time is going to be the issue as I see it. Textile broker Plichette may take some time, or may take no time at all, if he has decided over the night that I was not so amusing as he first thought. The visit to the technology exchange may be lengthy. The other two top tiers wanted to discuss the catalog. At least that was what they said, Father said, pushing back from the table. I think you have a very good plan, and I propose that we act upon it. If you will do me the honor of contacting our four top vendors and finding when we may call and how long a time they envision that we will spend together, I will be obliged. Once those times are in hand, then you will, of course, be able to call the second-tier vendors to arrange visits with them." There, I think we need not commit to more than half an hour, and the cold calls ought to consume no more than five minutes each. Oh, and do remember, will you, Paddy, to leave us time to eat a nunchin? Paddy looked at the cards and picked them up. Nuncheon, of course. Local folk, she thought, deliberately not sighing, would know which was the best place to eat lunch in their vicinity. He must remember to ask certainly master trader she said and rose in her turn moving toward the comm unit sitting on the spindly white and gold table in the corner of the room farthest from the window and the view of the mountain tolly jones admiral bunter said tolly didn't look up from his screen It wasn't that he found conservation techniques of potentially active pre-emergence autonomous calculating systems all that compelling a read. But he'd drawn his line in the dust, and he'd damn well better stay behind it. He'd confused the boy, that's what it was. Confused him on purpose and in a specific direction. By itself, he didn't think moral confusion was going to undo whatever it was that Inky'd done. And he didn't put tampering with the core beyond her. But if he could make a few cracks, get himself a little leverage. Tolly Jones, I wish to speak to you from the Melanti of one who wishes pilot guard Hazenthal no harm. We both embrace this melante, do we not? Well, this was interesting. He hoped the Admiral'd find it in him to continue without encouragement, because he'd really like to know where the AI was going with this. There was silence while the Admiral waited what he might consider to be human long for Tolly's answer on the matter of has. Very well, he said eventually. I shall proceed. Perhaps, when you hear the question, you will understand that it is a separate issue from our relative Melantes of prisoner and jailer, though it concerns us nearly through a shared Melante. Boyd been studying, credit where it was due. Tolly waited, head bent over the reader. Pilot Hazenthal sent you a message of reassurance to which you responded with a message of anger and rejection. I ask an explanation of this interaction. I do not understand it, and I believe you will have made the pilot angry. My experience of you is that you are a careful thinker and in control of your emotions. The probable effect of your response upon the pilot must have been obvious to you. Therefore, you must wish Pilot Hazenthal to be angry with you. Why? Well, well. Good question. Good observation. Too bad he wasn't going to answer it. Though it was kind of warming to know that he and the Admiral shared an admiration for big, dour women. Or a big, dour woman, anyway. He'd said no more mentoring for him, and he meant no wait. He was going to answer it. The admiral was right. He owed it to Haz to answer the admiral's question. Haz was a cord that tied him and Admiral Bunter together. But the admiral also had a tie to Hazenthal, and he wished her no harm. That might come in handy for her sometime in the future, He raised his head and glanced up at the ceiling. Haz was getting ready to do something stupid, he said, his voice sounding hard in his own ears. She was getting ready to chase you and me right down the throat of the liar institute, and that isn't a proposition she can survive. I deliberately made her mad at me so she'd cut her loss, go home, and live a long, long time safe and free. He took a breath, forcing it past the lump in his throat. I don't want to talk about Haz anymore. I'm reading here, if you don't mind, and it's kind of tough going. There was no answer, and after a moment, he bent his head again over his book. The child was positively radiant this morning, Sean thought pouring himself a third cup of coffee, so some good had come from yesterday's episode of Frank Discovery. He was slightly less than radiant. There was grit in the air, or so it seemed to him, and he was just a little, and despite two cups of very robust coffee, lethargic, Nothing worrisome, he often slept less well on port than he did aboard the passage, and lethargy was easily treated with a relaxation exercise, which he had best tend to now. Perhaps, if he was clever, he wouldn't need to drink all of the third cup. He set the pot down on the buffet and closed his eyes, clearing his mind of all distraction, calling up the image of the pond at the center of Treala Fantrol's formal garden, a perfect circle, absolutely calm, reflecting the green of the sky and just one very fluffy white cloud. Behind him, he heard Paddy speaking into the calm. He concentrated on the pond, and her voice faded, leaving him alone in the perfect moment of solitude. One slow, deep breath, energy rose into him as bright and serene as the water. His lungs were full. For a moment he stood, not breathing, balanced between trance state and the everyday, before slowly, deliberately, he let the air leave him. The rich aroma of coffee grew gradually more definite. He could feel his feet, comfortable in a favorite pair of boots. The pond faded from his awareness, and he heard Paddy speaking. Thank you, ma'am. Master Trader Jos Galen and I look forward to meeting with you today. He opened his eyes, smiling and refreshed.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the happy yodels of uplifted space whales as they plunge in and out of the cleansing gamma spectrum of the solar corona plus all our thanks and praise to David Drake, author of Though Hell Should Bar the Way. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.